that talk is about to begin. Hey, 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 come on in. Welcome back to Buckeye Talk. It is the Thursday edition. I'm Nathan Baird from Cleveland.com along with Stephen Means. Doug Maurice is on a just world-stopping important assignment, I'm sure, this week. Um, enjoying some, uh, not really time off, but a break to work on a project that we're all looking forward to him wrapping up uh, that he's mentioned here before. So that'll be coming down the line. But today we're talking Ohio State football and basketball. We're going to start off talking football and kind of an extension of yesterday's pod. I hope you all got to listen to that, which was where we took kind of a, a new twist on this draft idea and a a way to explore recruiting rankings and kind of crush it all together and come up with a new exercise. We've got some good feedback today. People seem to enjoy making their teams going along with that. Steven, as you look back 24 hours later, are you still happy with your team? I'm not upset with my team. I'm not as confident but it should win as I was when we did it last week with that draft. I think I was a little bit more con- with this one. I am intrigued to see how, fa- how the textures view it. I, I think we did a really good job of coming up with three pretty balanced teams. And I'm, I too am curious about the texture vote. I sent that text out Wednesday morning. If you guys get that and want to vote on who had the best team, you actually get to rank all three teams that helps us decide who drafts in what order for the next time we do a draft. And we think the next draft is going to veer off of football a little bit, maybe go into something more fun. We're actually thinking of ways of maybe getting a tech subscriber involved with that. Um, but that's still kind of on the back burner. We'll let you guys know as that comes up. But your, your involvement is important, whether or not you're, whether you're sending us your own teams when we do this sort of thing, your own draft ideas, or whether you're voting on whether I won, which I did last time. No one's counting, but I won last time. And um, voting on whether or not one of us won or who finished second, because then that's how we we carry it forward in the next one. So thanks for everyone who's helped along with that. And out of that conversation we had yesterday, one of the things we brought up was this concept of young guys, because uh, Ohio State has a lot of young guys who are really highly ranked, who just on talent alone would have been people who might have been picked regardless of the cost associated. And if that doesn't make sense to you, again, you have to kind of go back and listen to the Wednesday pod for that to make sense. But because we haven't really seen them play that much, it was hard to pick them or hard for, I think both us and the texters who are filling out teams to put a lot of confidence in those guys. And so we want to have this conversation about the young versus old, what do you want to say? Conflict that sometimes happens at Ohio state, whether or not it's a real thing and whether or not it might come up again this fall and in what positions it seems like it'll come up again this fall. And I look back over the past two seasons to try to find some examples of where this may or may not have happened. I guess let's start, first of all, Stephen, you are in your third season, or have you're going into your fourth season, actually, mm-hmm. part of your fourth season, around Ohio State football, covering Ohio State football. Is this a dynamic that you feel actually exists, that this coaching staff, and you've seen the overlap, you've gone from the very end of the Urban Meyer era into the start of the Ryan Day era. So now it's really more, I guess, more accurate to maybe only judge these last two seasons. But you feel like there's a trend here that this this coaching staff leans veteran, sometimes to its detriment. Yes, I think it does. I think the last the, – my time on the beat's a hard way to judge it, though, just because I think in 2018 they leaned veteran at wide receiver and it worked. Obviously, because, I mean, Paris Campbell, Terry McLaurin, Johnny Dixon, uh, you can throw Ben Victor in there. and They just had guys, K.J. Hill, those guys. Sometimes it works out very well like that. But we've also seen – I've also seen situations where, I mean, the secondary last year, it didn't work out so well when you went with maybe the experience over trying out some younger guys. The linebacker room, I think – is the one place where it's interesting because you probably would have gotten the same production. Um, I guess oh, that's an argument that can maybe be made when you've got top 100 guys who are behind guys who have been here three and four years who are just basically blocked. The argument is you can maybe have the same, same production of those guys. But yes, in my history covering this team, but then also watching it growing up, there has always been this, 
yeah, the older guy's good, but the guy behind him might be an All-American. He just, just can't get on the field. So I only judging it over the last two seasons, to me this is still a little bit of an unsettled question, and I think 2021 is going to maybe give us a better idea of exactly where Ryan Day, Kerry Combs, Kevin Wilson, the rest of this coaching staff stand as far as this idea of, of where the young guys stand and whether or not they sometimes trend old at, to their detriment. I want to go back from some examples of the past two seasons and why I think they, they do or don't apply. I was looking back to 2019 even. You had, you know, back to 2019 and 2020, that 2018 class of linebackers has never cracked through in any kind of a meaningful way. And I think people expected that to happen going into 2019. And I think over that time, though, Pete Werner definitely established himself as the guy who needed to play in that linebacker group. I don't think anybody looks back on that and says, if only they had given those snaps to someone else because of what he proved over those over these past two seasons. I think Baron Browning had, had proved himself, and I think he was a guy that people were expecting to emerge anyway. Justin Hilliard, the way he played at the end of last season, I think it would be very hard to argue that those snaps should have gone to someone else. Uh, the way he – I mean, he, he was playing at the same level or above Baron Browning at times late in that season. And then I guess the one that, that hangs out there for people is Tuff Borland. I would just say I – I, people have made a this snap call, I think, sometimes on him. And I always push back on that narrative because I feel like you can look at other examples on this team, whether it's – I guess the one that jumps to mind the most might be C.J. Saunders, but I think there are other examples of this, of guys who are respected by the coaches for their intangibles, but yet that doesn't necessarily result in a role on the field. When a guy keeps getting put out on the field over and over again, I, there's a part of me that is, is inclined to believe that they're showing something in the grand scheme of things that they're not necessarily seeing from the guys who would be fighting to get that position. So uh, that I don't think it li- applies a linebacker. I think linebacker, the, the veterans that they had the past two years deserved the snaps that they got. I was looking at, you could even extend this maybe to the offensive line last year and 2019 where Nicholas Petit Frere and then last year with uh, Paris Johnson, guys who had, you know, these really high ceilings coming in and not winning those spots. But in both of those cases, you're talking about Paris Johnson Jr., a true freshman, you know, considering what Nicholas Petit Frere ended up doing last year, it doesn't, I don't assume that that was a roadblock situation. I think Nicholas Petit Frere proved he deserved to be playing. And going back to 2019, it isn't even so much what Brandon Bowen did. It was that Nicholas Petit Frere physically probably wasn't ready for that job yet. And he has said it as much as anybody. that He had to add weight. He had to keep growing into, even if the skill was there, to play at the Big Ten level, he had to reach another level in terms of his size. So the, the one place where it really stands out from these past couple of years is the secondary. I mean, I looked around the rest of the field. You know, Garrett Wilson played as a true freshman, more or less, in equal snaps down the stretch in 2019 behind everybody except – or equal with everybody except K.J. Hill. K.J. Hill was a different position almost and kind of off by himself. But among those outside guys, Garrett Wilson was essentially equal to all those veteran guys as a true freshman. Jeremy Ruckert, pretty early on in his career, has been able to play a lot of snaps, even though there were – you know, he was equal with Luke Farrell more or less. He was ahead of Jake Hausman. That's another one where I think the talent won out regardless of age. Zach Harrison played the second most defensive end snaps in 2019. It was only the third most in 2020, but we've talked about this before, that it was, it was kind of askew early in the year and it equaled out later in the year where he was playing more snaps. So really, I feel like this conversation almost comes back, at least what we feel like has been established as a trend. To me, it's, it's all about what last year's secondary was. But – as you said before, that is the one where, as we watched that season play out, it seemed like it was costing them at times. It was. And even with the tough Borland situation, I don't know if that one might not have a, be paid off as far as maybe the guy behind tough Borland should be playing until that guy gets stuck in a similar position that tough Borland was in in the national championship game where he ends up on a fast guy and you just see him getting ran away from. Now, I'm not saying that it, that the guy behind Tuff Borland would have hawked down Devontae Smith at all, but it just – you just might have feel more comfortable that he might prevent something from – prevent a touchdown at least or something like that. I don't know. It's just everything that you already thought about Tuff Borland came to play 
in that one in that one play. And there have been plenty of times before but that, that. But it was, but that wasn't Tough Borland's failure. I mean, I don't think that it wasn't. That, it wasn't. That's not on Tough Borland. That's just it's pointing out his talent. That that has not. But the talent has nothing to do with him being put in that position in the first place. You're correct. The secondary situation. I kind of want to give it a pass, but I kind of don't. Just given they, at the time when they wanted to maybe change some things, games started getting canceled and guys started missing games because of injuries. And so I, I, from you, I say it with an asterisk, but still, that's why you should have been playing Lathan Ransom and Ryan Watts and Legend Cavazos and everybody else in that room, and Ronnie Hickman in the first few weeks. So you weren't in that situation. And Brian Shaw as well. So you're not just throwing those guys out there in meaningful games because they've at least played some 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 type of snaps before that game. That was my only problem with last season. You started Marcus Hooker and you just played him every snap. And you put Josh Proctor in this role and that was just what you were going to do until you realized Marcus Hooker wasn't good enough to play in that role. And even further down the line, up next to get some of these snaps was Tyreek Johnson, the older guy who – hasn't panned out as a five-star after he showed you against Rutgers that he's probably not it probably should have tried somebody else. I think legend Cavazos was probably back by then. And if you were going to move Marcus Williamson to just be the second safety later in the season, you know, you what would have made that an easier decision to make is if Cameron Martinez would have got some type of snaps at the end of a blowout game or something like that. So I'll give it a little bit of a pass just given the way the season played out, but you, there were some ways that you could have, put some guys in positions in games where you knew the situation was set, knew the game was already in hand, that you wouldn't have been put in these situations where Lathan Ransom's not playing, was it, 30-something snaps in the, in the Big Ten championship game without playing any other meaningful snaps before that. So, obviously, midseason, this was a topic of conversation, and we asked Kerry Combs about it. I think this was going into the Illinois game. So, they had already played the Indiana game. This was going into the Illinois game that, of course, did not end up happening. Mm-hmm. But I asked him – about this concept of having to sort of take a leap of faith when guys aren't getting the job done and when maybe you haven't had a chance. And and here was his quote. It's easy to sub in interior defensive linemen and let them get experience. It's much harder on the islands of the secondary to do that. And so there are things that we would like to do, and those are things that when it's 35 to 7, you would look forward to having that opportunity to do that. We're practicing a lot of depth. We're not playing a lot of depth. And some of that is a function of the way these second halves have gone. So that's something we would like to be able to do. You're absolutely right. And that leap of faith is a big one. Here's why I feel like 2020 was a warning sign might be too strong of a term, but it, it's something to keep an eye on and why, though I'm still undecided about whether it really is a potential blind spot for this coaching staff. You already mentioned the COVID situation. So let's do it kind of chronologically. You had no spring, hardly and a really chopped up preseason. So that affected how ready some of these young guys would have been from day one. B, we can't forget how much the Cam Brown injury complicated things. If Cam Brown had yeah. not torn his Achilles late in the Penn State game on a play happening completely away from the ball, just a freak thing that happens, on because they happen in football, you have to almost kind of factor that into – it's like owning a business and having to factor in theft or whatever to your business plan. Like you have to factor in somebody important getting injured in a freak way at some point during the season almost. That happens. It costs them a veteran defensive back who could have helped them in any number of ways down the stretch of that season. And then the other thing to remember here is if a normal season had played out – and we had said player A, player B, who wasn't getting the job done, got replaced after six games uh, because the, the freshmen through practice and through blowout opportunities had shown themselves ready to take that next that, – I think that would have been – that actually would have still been pretty early in a season to be going to those guys. Six games in this season was the Big Ten Championship game. Like this yep. just – and, and what you were saying before about like getting guys opportunities late in games to show things – Though that really didn't happen. People need to remember the Nebraska game was still relatively close early in the third quarter. It wasn't until the third quarter that that game really separated. That was the first game of the year. They, they, I, I can understand why they weren't just ready to, to flood young guys in in the second half of that game. The, the Penn State game was close. The Rutgers game got close in a way that it shouldn't have, partially because they were playing some backup guys to get them some snaps in the second half, and it didn't go well, as you brought up. There were then just not a lot of other opportunities. Michigan State was really like the only other opportunity 
until you get to the Clemson game, weirdly, where they like smacked somebody so hard that there was that kind of big separation and you could maybe get guys minutes. There are a lot of other games that opportunity really just didn't materialize. And that's why Kerry Combs was saying in the, when it's 35 to seven, you would look forward to having the opportunity to do that. That was a way of saying, and I don't think he's necessarily throwing individuals under the bus. I think he's saying we as a program, Ohio state as a program did not capitalize on, on that opportunity. And maybe it's going to cost us. And it was costing them in the moment because mm-hmm. he was kind of admitting we don't have enough evaluation on some of these guys. So 2020, again, we're looking at a very small window. And it, so I understand why the signs are there, but why I don't go so far as to say it's definitely been a problem is because 2020 is a really hard season to gauge. I, I wouldn't say it's still been a, a, I don't know if it's been a problem. I just think there's always, a, as we were talking about at the end of the, yesterday's pod, it's, it's, it's always going to be a young guy who might be better. And I think, yes, you can, you can put an asterisk on the 2020 season all you want, but now here we are in 2021, we're coming into the spring there's some young guys who might be ready in the secondary and you got to be willing to play those guys over some of the guys who have quote unquote experience. You can say the same thing in the running back room with, I mean, we've been talking about Travion Henderson basically since he committed here about what he can do the moment he steps on this campus, but he's not going to have any experience. And he has, and he has the caveat of he hasn't played football in two years because Virginia is not playing the playing football in spring. So he didn't play. So he's going to have that caveat as well, just like J.K. Dobbins had when he got in here. He got hurt his first game of his senior year of high school. So he didn't play senior, He didn't play that fall either. You're going to have that same caveat, but you're going to have the experience of Master Teague. A level of – some level of experience from Steel Chambers and well, Mayan gonna, Williams because they both got snaps. Go ahead. Don't get ahead of us because we're going to get into that in the second That's category. Right. Like where all of these cat, – what positions this is going to be the most – relevant for in 2021 sure. i did want to say though if for so you brought up the, the example of the the 2018 receivers mm-hmm. by the end of the 2018 season though chris Olave had really kind of thrust himself into that conversation right where he deserved he more snaps and to become a, you know a, a bigger part of that team i'm trying to think of other times where a a true freshman has come in and gotten that benefit of the doubt right away and i don't really you know, Garrett Wilson was getting snaps from the beginning of the season as a true freshman, but wasn't a had not pushed to the top of that rotation until later in that season. Even Chase Young comes in as a true freshman and is fifth in that rotation, partially because there were some decent guys ahead of him. But I, I guess I'm 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 I, I, that's where the other thing where 2020 got thrown off was that there you didn't get to have the natural progression of a true freshman throughout a season to maybe overtake a guy he was more talented than because there was no progression in 2020. It was a it was a jumbled up mess week to week. So with some context with Chris Olave, that only happened because Austin Mack got hurt. So that and that's a another situation just like in 2020 where it's somebody had to get hurt for the better young guy to play. Ronnie Hick when Marcus Well, but but let's not okay, but but better young guy, let's put that in context too because Austin Mack is like on NFL roster right now. He is, but he's not Chris Olave. Well, Chris yeah, Olave that, wasn't Chris Olave when he was a true freshman. He was the story of the Michigan game. He had two week, touchdowns. In week 12. Right, exactly. He didn't start playing until the Michigan State game that year. His, he, played, he, played some, he played garbage snaps up until the Michigan State game. He got out there, played nine snaps in the Michigan State game and had a catch. The next week against Maryland, he plays 23 snaps. And then his 17 snaps – in the Michigan game, led to two touchdown catches, and then on special teams, he blocked the punt. It's it's not so much it, – it's no, Chris Olave wasn't the – but the ceiling to get to, to being with the Chris Olave he is now was already there then. And that's what the it's – not, it's, not, it's not so much that, yes, Austin Mack is on the NFL roster. There's a lot of guys on Ohio State's roster every single year who are going to just make NFL rosters. But the guy behind you might be an All-American. Brandon Bowen just got signed from somebody, but he's not, his ceiling is clearly not higher than what Nicholas Petit Frere's was. That That's what the point is. It's not so much that right, Austin Mack was good. You're, you're, you're arguing the opposite side of it now because I don't think people look back at 2019 now and I think say 
right? Are, are, do you think people are looking back at 2019 and saying, if only Nicholas Petit Frere had been given that job, that Ohio State team would have been better? Because I no, think but what, it's what the they're actually saying is he wasn't ready yet. No, but the, it's it's the the higher ceiling is why it was a conversation going into the offseason in the first place. It's not so much that it worked out and Brandon Bourne ended up being a solid addition as the right tackle. It's going into it. It's Brandon Bourne's the old guy who had an opportunity to start and lost it because he got injured. And here's this five-star, highest-rated offensive tackle to ever come to Ohio State in year two. He's probably going to win a job. That's what, what more I, it is. Right, but what I'm saying is, so if, if for, in your mind, going into 2021, it's not – where they end up it's whether or not Ohio State is making these decisions at the beginning of the season to play younger guys over older guys yeah all right well let's let's come back from break and we're going to talk a little bit about each of these categories and and how this young old dynamic might play out you're listening to Buckeye Talk all right we're back on Buckeye Talk there were four positions that jumped out at me where this young versus old thing might come into play a little bit in 2021. The one that you already started to allude to was running back. I got carried it's away a just, little bit. What's that? I got carried away a little bit. <laughs> it's, that's all right. Uh, I just you, you, you do this often where it's like you're jumping ahead to like three topics yeah. down the line, and I'm just trying to keep things <laughs> in line so we flow uh, easily into the next one. Running back is, is, is an obvious one. It's a room that's chock full of people. We talked about this on Wednesday. It's kind of bursting at the seams all of a sudden. You know, last spring it was like, does this team have three running backs that it can give the ball to? And now it's like, do they have three too many running backs to make people comfortable in this room? Not quite. Not not three too many, but it, it's getting full. And so you've got a balance now of Master Teague, a guy who's been on a second and third team all Big Ten guy the past two years, a guy who has been productive in the past two years, a guy who has – in some ways really saved Ohio State. I mean, he was – before Trey Sermon did what he did at the end of last season, Trey Sermon was very ordinary, and Master Teague was running better than him for, for a decent stretch of what, again, was a very chopped-up season. So he deserves and I think will have a lot of respect from this coaching staff going into the fall. I don't think they're going to very easily throw somebody else all of the snaps in that backfield. You've also got guys like Steel Chambers, like Marcus Crowley, and then what Mayan uh, Williams did late in the season. But guys who have paid some dues, who have also um, in varying ways produced when given the chance. Not so much for Chambers and Crowley, because theirs were mostly like third string chances in 2019. And then there weren't a lot of those opportunities in 2020. And Mayan Williams was also just very quick bursts here and there. But I think, anyway, you've got veteran guys, guys who've been in the program for multiple years and I think uh, are going to probably, you know, fight to keep their place. And then on top of that, you're throwing into this equation, the number one running back recruit in the country, a guy in Trevon Henderson that people look at and see special things. And a guy in Evan Pryor, who is in, in any other year would be getting all the accolades for being a high running back recruit, but is, is merely like a top 100 guy and not as, as heralded as a five-star like Trevion Williams. So, or Trevion Henderson, I should say. So I guess, how do you see that playing out in terms of how Ohio State needs to evaluate that? Because I think we all know, again, who has the highest ceiling, but does that mean they are the most, the best all around back from day one and deserve the majority of those snaps? I think Travion Henderson's going to come in when they start. I mean, he's already here, so it's not coming. When they start spring practice, he's going to blow people away from day one. I, I think that is on the table and we have to, we have to approach as if that might happen. He's the number one running back in the country. There's a chance that might happen. And so what we can't have happen is we start talking to guys and everyone's like, man, Travion Tra Henderson, he's, he's killing every day. It's just every single day. It's every, and we're hearing that from multiple position groups who are saying, if we ask the linebackers, Hey, who's been one of the toughest people when you guys go good on good. And they're going Travion Henderson. He has been, his first impression has been awesome. We're hearing that from the, from the running back room. We're hearing it from the quarterback room, from the offensive lineman. Everybody is talking about Travion Henderson, but then we get to the Minnesota game and master Teague's the starter. That's not, that doesn't add up because that, that means something's going that, – that, that's, that's, that's Ohio State not going with the best guy, in, in my opinion, in that situation because it was the same thing in 2017 with J.K. Dobbins. 
everybody apparently I wouldn't hear, but from how Doug has talked about it, the way I've read about it and going back and looking at it, everybody has been talking about J.K. Dobbins all spring and all through fall camp. Now, because Mike Weber was hurt, they didn't have the problem of having to deal with, okay, who was going to be the starter. It was just J.K. Dobbins. And from the very first game of his college career, he was awesome. And then they decided to go back to a two-back system. They can't do that. If you've got a guy who showed you all spring and all fall, it doesn't matter how long he's been here. It doesn't matter how young he is or how old he is. If he's showing you he's the best player in the room, he needs to be your starter. Here as a reporter is where I, I struggle with this sometimes because I think there's times where we go out there and talk to these players and you ask them, um, you don't even sometimes get, they don't even sometimes get asked like just who, and we're not even going to suggest a name, who's really impressing you. They'll ask things like, boy, what are you seeing from Trevion Henderson? And they'll be like, oh, man, that guy, his top yeah. end speed, or oh, man, the way he breaks away, blah, blah, blah. You know what they don't often volunteer in those situations is like, oh, man, he's getting just absolutely blown up in pass mm -hmm. pro every time. Or, oh, man, like sometimes he just doesn't really know what he's doing on running around. And I'm not saying I know this about Trevion Henderson or even suspect it. I'm just – you can put player X in there. It's not about Trevion Henderson necessarily. But I, I, I do think that that's sometimes where this – illusion comes from is that they'll talk about a guy in terms of his superlatives because you know what a lot of times we'll also hear is we'll ask like hey who else besides the starters is impressing you in the secondary and they'll start dropping names of guys who never see the field and about how much they like them sometimes it's maybe because they're friends and sometimes it's maybe because they really do look good in practice but that doesn't mean they look better than the guy ahead of them so that's one thing that I want to caution people as we go into the spring as you go into the fall uh, I think it's up to us to try to talk to the right people and get a more nuanced evaluation of guys rather than just kind of um, relying on what the, the players say in some of these very, in some of these interview situations where it's very easy to be complimentary of guys. Um, another position, and really the rest of these positions, I think it applies more to the defensive line. Cause I think we all think that Paris Johnson jr is going to at least be a starter at least yeah. be a starter I, I mean i meant to say defense not defensive line but although we're gonna come back to the defensive line but we think paris johnson jr is gonna start on offense we think that the receiver room is still going to be even if they mix in more of these younger guys it's still going to be largely the alave and garrett wilson show so i i think those things are kind of settled and obviously quarterback all their only choice is to pick a young guy so on the defensive side of the ball, I think you can go at every level and find a way that this dynamic will be in question this fall and this spring as, as we watch things play out. At defensive end, you could you have Jack Sawyer coming in. You may have JT Tumaloa coming in uh, later on in the, in the summer before the season. That's two really high-ceiling, talented young guys on a team that needs someone to really establish a pass rush. And at the same time, though, this is where I think it really – it is, is almost the crux of the question in some ways, because we always, I think a lot of times we look at those situations and we think, well, I mean, it's kind of a deficiency for Ohio state. They need to summon a pass rush more and they got these two young studs coming in. So shouldn't one of those guys help solve the, you know, provide the answer. And then what a lot of times I think ends up happening at Ohio state is like third year, fourth year, Tyreek Smith, Zach mm -hmm. Harrison, another gear kicks in and then those guys are just the answer to the question. It happened with Jonathan Cooper a little bit last year. I mean, that was their best all around defensive end, regardless of who else had talent or, or stars or whatever. Although Cooper had some too coming out of high school um, a decade ago or whenever that was like it, he was the best defensive end. And, and it wasn't about like pushing the young guys down. It was about what I think he proved on the field every day. Yeah, I think you're right. I think defensive defensive line might not be an issue as much. I mean, the interior, obviously, getting depth there is going to be an issue behind Haskell Garrett and Antoine Jackson and Jerron Cage. I think those are the only three I think we all expect to get on the field after that. Maybe it's, that's where guys like Mike Hall come into the situation as a guy who's going to not get here into the summertime, but is that a guy who can carve out a role for himself as a rotational guy on the interior. I think the defensive – the edges are going to be what they are. I think that's – it's going to be Zach Harrison and Tyreek Smith, and then behind them it's going to be Tyler Friday and Javante Jean-Paptiste. And then it's Jack Sawyer, as he, at least for now, is the Chase Young of 2017 in that group. Or maybe – or maybe even Zach Harris. That, that's where it is interesting when you bring up Jack Sawyer, especially because JT's not technically in the class yet or even signed. Can Jack – Sawyer do what Zach Harrison did in 2019, where 
every week, it, it, that's where the progression is. It's, it's the first couple of weeks, maybe he's the last guy in the rotation and he's the guy playing in the garbage snaps and he's flashing and he's flashing and he's flashing. And then by midway through the season, obviously Zach Harrison got a little bit of help because Chase Young got suspended for two games. And, and one of those games, the defensive line had seven sacks, but also he looked pretty good in those games. But by the time we get to, by the time we get to the Big Ten championship game, we get to the college football playoff or a bowl game, Jack Sawyer's third on the list of, of defensive ends getting, getting snaps there instead of being fifth. That's where I think it's interesting. It's not a situation like with the running back room where it's if Jack Sawyer is – if Travion Henderson is awesome all offseason, he needs to be your starter. This is a because of the depth there and because it's more proven depth and the ceiling is also higher with the guys ahead of him, than it would be with Master Teague and Travion Henderson. You can be a little bit more gradual in the, in the approach, but it's interesting to see if it does happen because his ceiling is at least higher than what Tommy, uh, Tyler Friday and Javante Jean-Baptiste are, even if it's not higher than Tyreek Smith and Zach Harrison's are right now. I think that it's possible that this dynamic could be a little bit in play at linebacker. You've got three guys in Taraja Mitchell, Dallas Gant, Kayvon Pope, who have I mean, this is like the ultimate like look up paying your dues in the dictionary and it's a picture yeah. of these guys. I mean they've been here going into their fourth year. They have never really been able to to break through to a place because of the guys ahead of them where they're getting a lot of snaps on defense. They've been special teams contributors. They've been out there in other capacities, but they haven't been like mainstays of the defense really. And this is their shot to do it. At the same time, there are some intriguing younger guys from a linebacker standpoint. I know the big guys are coming in 2022, but you've got guys like Craig Young and and some other guys who I think are intriguing lower on, you know, in the lower classes of this defense, of the linebacker group. And I am curious how they approach this because if you're a guy who's been here for – this is what you've been waiting for. This is the payoff you've been waiting for. And I, th- I would assume that the coaching staff – it's not that they're going to give them a job, but I think you probably give them the opportunity to prove that they're not the guy in, in some ways, right? And I don't necessarily think that that is a shortcoming in, in some ways because I think you almost have to do that to show guys that that next guy who would maybe be staying around for four years that you're going to get every opportunity to win that job. I think the linebacker room is the most interesting thing because it is a 100% reset and it is almost the ultimate test of playing the old guys versus the young guys. Because what we're either going to find out is, is these 2018 guys especially were always awesome and they were just blocked. Or we're going to find out the reason that – or we're going to be validated – or Al Washington's going to be validated in the reason why they were being blocked is because maybe they just weren't good enough. And so this is the ultimate test of that, even more than the secondary, because – They've at least got seven bags coming back and Josh Proctor coming. A lot of those guys are actually coming back. It's just Sean Wade's not coming back. In the linebacker room, nobody's coming back. And so it is a 100% reset and a way to validate either what we feel should have happened, what fans think should have happened, or what the coaches decided to ultimately do. And so that that is going to be an – Craig Young, you mentioned. I mean, Cody Simon was a top 100 guy. Mitchell Melton is an interesting – he's not a top 100 guy, but that's an interesting guy in that room. Reed Carrico coming in as a top 100 guy who – has been called the a much more athletic tough Borland. That just to put it frank, that's what he's been called. Court Williams is going to be healthy now, so that that's an in, there's interesting young talent with some old guys who have been waiting to pay their dues and who ends up winning out in that situation. I think linebacker could also be a spot where we've talked before about rotations and how it's a natural rotation on the defensive line where you're talking about interior or end. We've talked about the rotation that they use at receiver. In the past, they've also rotated pretty deep at corner. I wonder if it couldn't be necessarily a true rotation at linebacker, but you have so many pieces there that you can start to get very specific about who fits which role the best. You could go with, in your base defense, you could go with all seniors at those three spots, and then you go to a nickel look, and then maybe now um, it's, Court Williams is the guy who would be at one of those linebacker spots along with putting another DB on the field. And that gives you more flexibility or, or Craig Young or Cody Simon, whoever. I mean, you've got so many different options of guys that you can mess around. Maybe there's a guy who makes a lot of sense as a nickel linebacker, but not as much sense as an early down conventional linebacker. And you can play with that a little bit. I'm intrigued to see if they allow themselves that kind of flexibility because I think it's there. And that's where, and on this, 
in this case, in the past, it was almost that you wasn't a young versus old, really. I was kind of, I shouldn't have even brought that up for 2019, 2020, because those guys weren't that different in age. The, the guys who were, who were leaving now, last year's yeah. seniors, and the guys who will be seniors, it was only one class difference. They were just, and that's what made that, I think such a such an interesting topic of conversation this whole time was that those those classes were bumped right up against each other. And now it is old versus young. These guys are all seniors, and then you have to go down two, three classes to get to this the group that might be taking their spot. So those are some positions where we think this might come up. I think the one still, though, where it's going to come up the most in, in terms of how we talk about this team, and it's already starting, and it's definitely going to probably continue to the start of the season and, and really as the season progresses, is the secondary it was the one where, it, in retrospect, it looked like they made the wrong decisions in a couple of ways in 2020. And again, there were complications. I sort of understand why it played out the way it did. But it, it was the one where it was already a topic of conversation for 2020, and there is still more uncertainty, I think, about 2021. You have a combination in the secondary of a lack of trust in some of the guys who would just be maybe taking jobs based on tenure the veteran guys who've been around here the longest and um, and the combination of that plus the the intrigue that goes along with some of the young guys that they have coming in, whether that was guys who were true freshmen last year and guys who are true freshmen who have already arrived and will be arriving this year. And that's the dynamic that I think it's going to be the most interesting to play out. I think seven banks is locked into a spot somewhere, you know, starting at cornerback. I think Josh Proctor is probably at this point, locked into a spot obviously we kind of thought that at this time last year and it turned out not to be the case he did not have a starting job to start the year but I think he has pulled back ahead to where that's a guy they feel like needs to be on the field and then you've got other jobs that are up for grabs and I don't know that I think that there's anyone who's necessarily guaranteed of of being out in front of those jobs whether that's slot corner whether that's the other cornerback spot opposite of seven banks whether that is who's going to be the nickel starter when they use that, although that, you know, they, they come and kind of, that's obviously more of a niche thing, but it, it's an important spot. So I think if, if they only go with veterans in those spots and we're still go through another year where some of these young guys are not sniffing, that either tells me that they've, they're, that they are leaning still too long on the veterans or they made some poor decisions on some of these young guys and their development just isn't coming along. Like, I don't know how one of those two things isn't the answer. And I would lean, I, I don't know how often Ohio State gets top 100 recruits here who don't turn into at least quality level players. Uh, uh, yes, there are some guys in the 2018 class who can list, but even outside of Tyreek Johnson, the other ones have an explanation for him. Nicholas Petit Fred need to put on some weight and Teron Bits has been hurt. So for the most part, if you're a top 100 recruit and you come to Ohio State at some point, you're going to make an impact. Jonathan Cooper was a top 100 recruit, and we saw what he did last year. And he was pretty quality up before that season. He just wasn't Nick Bosa or Chase Young, but he was pretty quality. So I would lean more in that situation when the idea that a guy has experience and so that guy should be on the field. And as we discussed yesterday, experience doesn't always mean good experience. And that's what the situation is. Marcus Hooker has experience. It just wasn't good film to look at when you when you put him on the field and got that experience. So I would lean more if if Marcus Hooker and and I'm, I feel like I'm just ragging on Marcus Hooker at this point. If the, if the secondary next year is just Marcus Hooker, Josh Proctor, uh, Seven Banks, and let's just say Cam Brown's the outside receiver, and, and Marcus Williams, if those are your guys again, I mean, I that, then something's going wrong here. That means you're focusing way too much on guys who have experience and not the guys who who have already shown you. And even if it's a small amount, they probably should be on the field, even if they're young guys. But also there are some top 100 guys who should be able to beat out some of these older guys who haven't really shown you much. Now here's where I think, where I, where, why, I, why I think the jury is still out on whether this actually is a problem for Ohio State. Because by the end of last season, who were we talking about the most in the secondary? And, and, and and was maybe getting the most attention. It was guys who were showing some promise like Ronnie Hickman, the way that he stepped up late in the season, Lathan Ransom, the way that he stepped up late in the season. We were hearing them talk about people like Ryan Watts and some of the guys who were on the field or on the team, but weren't really getting a big opportunity to play. Obviously legend Cavazos had some uh, injury situations. Like there were guys who, if, if this had been a normal season, like I said before, if we had been in like week eight, 
And now all of a sudden, guys, guys like that were starting to get a lot more snaps. I think that would have made a lot of sense to people. And you would have seen, again, a more natural progression into some of those younger guys getting a bigger role. The problem was, again, week eight was the national championship game. Like, they just yeah. didn't have a normal progression to a season. They needed those extra four games. They needed a couple of skull thumpers early on to get some guys, you know, a big fourth quarter snap portion for these young guys, freshmen on both sides of the ball, frankly. And that didn't happen. So I think that's why I'm still – I'm most intrigued to see, again, and not even who is, like, among the – you know, first team defense on the first day of spring, which I, I'm skeptical that we really get to actually see a lot of spring practice in person. But uh, if any, I mean, maybe yeah. we'll get to watch a spring game. I don't know, they but it, it's going to be limited. They can set up a camera up on the sky deck and we can just watch from a zoom call. Yeah. I don't think that's happening. No, so we, that. <laughs> we may get to see the spring game, but I, I don't know if we get to see a whole lot else than that. But again, I, I'm, I think the spring is still more about development. It's not necessarily about I need people need to know who is slotted into starting spots. I think it's more about how much opportunity these guys get this spring to show that they belong at the top of that. But it's also up to them to go out and outperform those guys. I, I don't I, – it's very easy for me to believe that there was nobody outperforming Marcus Williamson as the potential slot corner to start last season. Like that, that's not an, an unrealistic concept to me. He was a, a, a fourth year guy. He um, had obviously been waiting his turn, but he was also going head to head against guys who were on campus and, and for the first time last spring and who then didn't get to have a spring and didn't really get to build into their freshman year the way people normally would. Uh, I suppose you could, you could say that, you know, what we saw from someone like, Ronnie Hickman late in the season would have led you to believe maybe someone like that could have worked there, but I understand why they wouldn't assume that that was his natural position that that, that made the most sense for him to take. So I, it's not to me like what happens at the start of a season. I think it's more what we saw play out last year when it, when it's not working, how quickly do you pull the trigger to, to put your trust in some of these younger guys? Because it's not always going to be there from a, from a snap standpoint, sometimes you have to kind of trust your recruiting a little bit and say, we, we got this guy for a reason and he deserves to be on the field. I wouldn't say it would be very easy for me to believe that Marcus Williamson was outperforming other guys. I would say because of the way they were using Cam Brown, it, it was understandable why Marcus Williamson ended up being the, the slot corner, at least coming into the season, because I, my understanding, what I thought it would be, Cam Brown's a slot corner, and then Seven Banks and Sean Wood are the two outside guys. What it ended, it ended up being that way to begin with. It's just on first and second down, Cam Brown wasn't on the field. He and Josh Proctor were a part of were the nickel, third down package, instead of just Cam Brown always being out there for every slot corner snap while Josh Proctor came on the field for the third down. So I, I, I think you're right. It's, it's, it's got to be a mixture of both. I think there I wouldn't be surprised if there is a – if a Ryan Watts claims a job next year, I, I wouldn't be surprised if Jordan Hancock claims a job next year as a starting corner, just depending on how some things work out. I just think it can't be the exact same as last year, and I think they can't have that mindset of a guy having experience is the way you should lean because Ohio State doesn't have to be one of those schools who leans on experience to get a great player to play a certain position because we've seen guys go from not playing at all to getting on the field and all of a sudden their first-round draft pick. Now here's the, the, the true devil's advocate argument though people thought the same thing coming out of 2018 right with that linebacker group that if it's just those same guys out there that's going to be a disaster then it was one of the best defenses in the country in 2019 this is a and but the difference is coaching is different the coaching is better it's not bill davis it's that wasn't bill davis's linebackers Uh, washington quickly proved that he was a 10 times, 100 times better college linebacker coach than what Bill Davis was. So so the linebackers play better because the coaching was – that was less about talent and more about scheme. This time it's more about talent. I think you're right about that part. I think you're right that it is about talent. And I think it is also, though, uh, the, the other half of the equation is guys having to step up and show it. So that's what this spring is really about. And, uh, you know, we, we've gotten some questions. I think there was a question in one of the rapid fires recently that we didn't use. I'll use it now about do you think that there will be an, a normal offseason this year, and do you think the bad offseason last year held Ohio State back? And the answer to the first question is yes. I think it's, it's going to be more or less a conventional offseason. You know, fingers crossed, you know, now that we've got more advances coming medically and people are no 
better how to handle the pandemic stuff. But also the second half of that question, I think it affected Ohio State. I think this is how it affected Ohio State from a depth standpoint. Um, And it probably affected them more than not every team, but those teams like Alabama, like even Clemson that got to have, um, you know, that played through the pandemic in a different way. I think it probably, those teams benefited a little bit from that when, as far as developing depth. Now that obviously didn't stop Ohio state from crushing Clemson. Did it cost them against Alabama? Like having slightly better defensive backs on the field at times, would that have saved that game? I don't think so, but I think that's where we saw it. I think we saw that if there had been, if the, if the big 10 had played through the season, and I'm not saying this is right or wrong from a medical standpoint, but from a football standpoint, it would have benefited Ohio State. And now they have to play a little bit of catch-up. But everybody else in the Big Ten is in that same boat. Now it's just a matter of, you know, do you utilize this offseason and, and find the best guys going forward? What is your yeah. kind of level of confidence, though? I mean, do you feel like because 2020 was so messed up, do you, do you feel like this – a full spring, a full offseason puts the coaching staff in a better position? Because you're saying that, you know, the coaching staff here is – is better than it was in 2018 when they were, you know, when, when the defense had problems, do you feel like this coaching staff with a conventional off season will make is in better position to make the right decisions this fall? Yeah, that's a good way. Yeah, that's right. I'm confident that they're in a better position to make better decisions for like, I don't know if, I don't know how confident I am that they'll make those better decisions, but I am confident that they're in a better position to do so because yes, these, incoming front jacaylen johnson's not here uh, jk johnson's not here yet but J- jordan hancock is here the other second a lot of the secondary in that 2021 class is already here but then those 2020 guys now have a year under their belt but also they're going to get a normal spring as normal as can be as in they're going to have practice every day they're not going to have to go home for a month because of covid they're always going to be they're going to be on campus and get to go through that 15 practice schedule and then they're going to have a normal fall and so you're going to have a real evaluation of a lot of these guys that you necessarily didn't have last year so that's not an excuse anymore so I am a little bit more confident I don't know how much better the secondary is going to be I think they're still a way a year away from that just based on the talent that's on the roster but I do think that Kerry Combs is in a better position to maybe scheme some things up and have a better game plan than just playing four linebackers against the best passing offense in the country in a national championship game. Yes, I'm a lot more – I'm more confident that that will happen. We're going to get into more position-by-position position stuff as we get closer to the spring, but I think that kind of gives us an overview, especially on the defensive side, of, of kind of what the broader scope of things is and some of the things that we're going to have an eye on as the spring unfolds. We're going to come back from the break. We're going to talk about the upcoming weekend for Ohio State basketball here on Buckeye Talk. All right, Steven, some more basketball talk to close things out here on the Thursday edition of Buckeye Talk. Ohio State plays at Michigan State on Thursday. They play at home against Iowa on Sunday. All right, coming off of, a you know, obviously a, a well-played game, but a loss at home against Michigan and did not really affect them too much in the rankings. They're still a, a top four, top five team in the AP poll. Uh, did they is, Are they putting out a new um, – the ZNCA committee put out a new seating no I, this week. no I think that was just the it's one just the time, one time the, and yeah the mid-season like hey this is if it was to happen today this is what we do I, I couldn't remember how often they did that we're obviously getting yeah. closer to the end of the season so you don't kind of need to do it every week uh anyway the the thing to keep an eye on here is the net ranking and why it's, it's why every game I think still coming up for Ohio State could be a really valuable one you know we talked going into the Michigan game about what that could mean for them if they were able to win that and even coming out of a loss there, I think there's still a lot of help ahead on the schedule potentially. So we talked on the, the pod that, uh, where we broke down kind of the, the best basketball and football programs in the Big Ten. We had Michigan State basketball ranked number two, even though – or actually, I guess you had them three, but a top three program regardless of football or basketball. Even though they've really fallen off this year, they have a net ranking of 75 but they're coming on a two-game winning streak. They won at Indiana, which is like a fringe NCAA tournament team right now at best. And they won at home against Illinois, which is you know That's one of the win. top ten teams in the country. So that was a really good win. So it's a, it's a team that seems to be trending up right now in the Spartans. And the thing to keep in mind here, it, it can be easy to overlook a game like Thursday when you just look at the records. Michigan State right now is number 75 in the net rankings. And 
a, a road win against a team ranked in the top 75 counts as a quad one victory. It does. So if Michigan State can stay in the top 75, that's another important win for an Ohio State team that already ranks number one in the country in quad one wins. They're eight and four. Those eight quad one wins are the most in the country. Now, to put it in full context, Gonzaga and Baylor are 13 and 0 in quad one games. So they have no losses against quad one teams. In some ways, that's even more impressive to, to have seven and six wins there. But the eight and four, the eight quad one wins are important. And if they can add one against Michigan State on Thursday, which again, Michigan State has to help them out by staying in the top 75. And then Iowa is number five in the net rankings. That there's it, So regardless, that will stay probably a quad one win, regardless of what the Hawkeyes do from here on in. To get two more such wins this week would really help their resume, help Ohio State's resume. 12 games against quad one opponents is ridiculous. Just uh, I know you said you brought up Gonzaga and Baylor at 13-0 combined. That's seven for Gonzaga, six for Baylor. Michigan, who's third in the net rankings, has seven. Illinois has played has played 13, so they're up there as one of their seven and six in those, which in Iowa's five and five. But it, 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 when you're double digit quad quad one games, that's actually that's a hard schedule, man. <laughs> that means every other night is basically an NCAA tournament game for you. That's that's a rough schedule. But yeah, I, I think I think you're right. I think Michigan State at this point, if they stay there, it's another quad one win for Ohio State. And I think I was I was really down on Penn State a week ago, and Ohio State ended up winning that game by ten points. But I think that the way it played out, I think this Michigan State game might play out the same way as well, where it's a nine o'clock tip off on a Thursday. There's a top ten opponent coming to Columbus in three days. You're tired. You've played a lot of high level basketball over the past two or three weeks here because these have not. This is an impressive stretch because of who they've been beating. Michigan State might hang around for a little bit. I don't think Michigan State's going to win the game. I think they might end up – Ohio State might end up winning by double digits. But I think they might hang around and, and, and you know, be able to make it a game the first 35 minutes of things just based on the scenario. So I wouldn't be surprised if it plays out the same way as Penn State. By the way, that Penn State game, they're 8-12 and 12 this year, also a quad one victory because I think they're like number 40 in the net rankings. So, like, again, that's a thing to keep an eye on is because it matters for the seeding. It, when, when it comes down to determining who gets a number one seed, that net ranking is, is going to be important. It could be a tiebreaker, which is what is sometimes – it could just be one factor that breaks a tie when you've got like four, five, six teams clustered that all kind of deserve that number one seed contention. How do you feel like they match up against Michigan State? And what, what has happened with Michigan State this year as you've watched them from afar? Why have they slipped off? And, and how does Ohio State match up? Because that was there was a stretch in this – conference where that was obviously as good as it got it was you know what what Thad Mata versus Tom Izzo was what you know Thad was what Chris Holtman against John Howard is right now yeah I I just think he's got a this is just a bad team for him and which is Tom Izzo hasn't had many of these right I mean they've been the the staple of the Big Ten for the last 20 years and so I just think this is this isn't his most talented roster and I think he's getting the most out of it you lose Cassius Winston uh, Rocket Watch has been pretty solid, but he's not great. I think this roster is literally, if you would have taken last year's roster and Cassius Winston got hurt, that's what it would have been for the most of the part. They also lost their second best player, who was the Big Ten Defensive Player of the Year last year, I believe. But it's just not his best roster. And so I think he's just getting the most out of it. And also, you can't not have your best roster and play in this conference where, I mean, this week alone, there are – four teams in the top 10 three of them are in the top five in Ohio State Michigan and Illinois right now so it's that combination of stuff I think Michigan State will be right back in the mix of things next year but they're good enough to make things hard for everybody and that's what they've been doing they just made games tough Iowa also a a tough team I was kind of disparaged them when we had the discussion earlier this week and I stand by that just based on what they do historically like we haven't seen them really break through and maybe this is a year where they can make some kind of a tournament run and they can end the season strong but the schedule in the Big Ten didn't really do them any favors because their week is at Michigan on Thursday at Ohio State on Sunday that's tough yeah yeah it's 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 crazy how this ended up working out how Illinois they kind of have a similar schedule as that as well the top four teams in the conference who all actually probably just need to win games for the sake of NCAA tournament seeding and be, be able to lock up that double bye have like the hardest end of the seasons and we've talked about this the Ohio State 2019 season how it's every night from basically the Penn State game on 
was a high-level game, and that's what Ohio State's dealing with. That's what Illinois is dealing with. That's what I was dealing with. That's what Michigan is dealing with as well. It's just Michigan has enough breathing room because they've only lost one game in the Big Ten that unless they just fall off a cliff and lose every single one of these games, I don't see them not winning the Big Ten. With Ohio State, they would need that. I, 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 I was talking to our boss, and I was mapping out how Ohio State can at least get a share. They need Michigan to lose to everybody that they play on the rest of their schedule, and they would have needed – Iowa and Illinois to lose to everybody but Michigan while Ohio State wins out. And that's a lot to ask any any team to, to get going their favor in order to win a, a share of the Big Ten. So that's probably not going to happen. So their their best bet is focusing on making sure they get that top four seed and they have a double bye. Iowa has won four straight since it had a loss at a very uneven Indiana team. And the teams that they've beaten in that stretch, they had a good win at Wisconsin, but they've also beaten like Rutgers, Penn State. There was a win at Michigan State in that stretch. Um, they played Ohio State earlier this season, kind of remind people how that game went and what Ohio State's going to have to do in order to pull off the sweep here. I think – I don't want to say do what you did the last time you played Iowa because, as you can see, against Michigan, that didn't work again. I think the defense just needs to be better and the off, the offense needs to continue to do what it's doing. But defensively, you've got to get stops. You can't allow Luca Garza to have the type of night that Hunter Dickinson had. Something similar to what you did last time where you held him 10 points below his average should help because then he's less of an issue and you can focus more on some of these shooters like Dylan McCaffrey. But you got to get stops when it matters the most. And you can't have crucial turnovers. And so it's, it's, it's a tournament-style game. You can't have the behind-the-back justice suing pass to absolutely nobody that leads to an end, one at the other end. Dwayne Washington Jr. and E.J. Liddell need to continue to score at a high level. But most importantly, back to justice suing, he's got to be better. He's got to be better. It's that I think a lot of what Ohio State wants to do is going to go through him because at this point you know what you're going to get from EJ. You know Dwayne Washington's either going to give you 30 points or four points on 30. Either way, he's shooting 30 shots. C.J. Walker is going to be the calming presence as your starting point guard. If Justin Orange can get shots, he's going to make them, and Kyle Young's going to clean up everything on the interior. And then Seth Towns and, and Eugene Brown and, and Musa Jallo and Michi Johnson are going to give you some solid minutes in Zed Key as well. But Justice Suing needs to be able to be the guy that whatever Ohio State is struggling with that night, he makes up for it, whether it's rebounding, whether it's defense, whether it's scoring, whether it's playmaking. You can't have a game like you had against Michigan where you're none of those things. You have to be something. You're too versatile of a player to not have an impact on a game. What's the key on Garza? Is it just playing better interior defense when he gets the ball? Is it keeping the ball away from him? Like, what did they do well the first time that, that kept him 10 points below that average, and, and how can they replicate it? I think they mixed it up. They didn't necessarily let – I think the different – I'll keep using the Michigan game as because it's a good thing to use. The thing they did against Iowa that they didn't do against Hunter they, – they, in the first half against Dickinson, they just doubled him every time he touched the ball, which, yeah, he's a great player. You probably double him. But it allowed those shooters to get into a rhythm because they weren't getting back and contesting. So then in the second half, when they tried to flip that, now Hunter Dickinson can have his way down in the paint. I think with Luka Garza and, and Kofi Coburn as well, they mixed it up. They doubled him sometimes. They, they, they allowed Zed Key to um, hold his own against him sometimes. They, they sent doubles from different ways. They pushed him off of his block and made him get the ball in uncomfortable positions. They just threw a lot of different things out of where it was a little frustrating for Luca Garza to get going in that game. Even when he was able to bring off a couple baskets in a row, you, you could tell he never really got into a rhythm the way that Hunter Dickinson was able to get into, even in Kobe Coburn as well. He was, those two were never able to get into a rhythm. And that's really what it comes down to with great players like that. He's going to score some baskets, but you got to make sure he doesn't get into a rhythm. And that's throwing multiple different ways, defensive coverages at him. And also hoping that, listen, Iowa just doesn't make 10 of what, 13 three-pointers in the first half. That'll probably help as well. Do you think Ohio State wins both these games? I do. I think this one's at home. I think, I, I think the difference is Iowa's defense isn't what Michigan's defense is. And so Ohio State, I don't think, is going to get into a rut offensively like they did in the second half against Michigan. I think they're going to be able to keep scoring, keep scoring, keep scoring. And in a world where Ohio State seems to lean more, we're going to try to outscore teams than get stops right now, I think Iowa's a team that they can, do, they can beat doing that. So follow Stephen for that, a big weekend for Ohio State basketball, and we're going to be following them as they go into the Big Ten tournament and on into the NCAA tournament, but still trending towards a, a really interesting march for that basketball program, that basketball team, and we'll be bringing it to you here on Buckeye Talk. But 
tomorrow back with possibly, oh, tomorrow is BFFs. Friday, the, the BFF recruiting podcast. Um, we've been BFFs here all week. And I think Doug might sneak back in for the Saturday pod, but we're going to bring you a, another recruiting topic for Friday. Um, I hope people are enjoying that. We may do a little rapid fire. We may ask for your questions. So be on the lookout for those texts. If you're a subscriber, 614-350-3315. So you can ask us exactly what you want to hear about right now from a recruiting standpoint for the Buckeyes. But for now, I'm Nathan Baird. For Stephen Means, that was Buckeye Talk. <laughs>